Welcome to Toby Haydock's Who's Round, in which I'm interviewing two gentlemen, both of whom are very sound. The wine's flowing, but I've got a blood test this afternoon, so I can't have any I of can't. it. This is Not possibly a fasting the, one, is it? The, 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 it is a fasting blood oh, test, God. and and also I, I normally buy lunch, but this is everything's already been organised. It's probably the most organised I've had an itinerary of trains. <laughs> These gentlemen are obviously not actors, because no actors are that organised. So I'm going to ask them who they are and why I'm talking to them about Doctor Who. Right. Well. I'm Patrick Hyam, known in the industry as Pat Hyam, and uh, I was uh, employed by the BBC from 1962 onwards for a period of about eight years. Um, we were taught most things to do with broadcast television and eventually majored, if you like, on sound. So I grew up on the sound ladder and having retired now for about 12 years, but uh, I finished up as a freelance production sound mixer in the film industry. Michael McCarthy um, started in the same way as Patrick. In fact, I started in 1961, September, um, and went through the BBC training process, which included a bit of cameras, a bit of lighting, a bit of whatever, and there were these strange people who used to appear in the studio from time to time, who would come down and climb on microphone booms, which were quite high in the air, and they would do the programme, and then they would disappear into a little room. And you wouldn't see them again until the next time there was a rehearsal, and they would appear, and there they'd come down, and they'd do their job, and they'd go away. And my sound training part of the section was right at the end of the year, so the last three months. And I was quite dreading going to see these strange people who just only appeared out of this little room. And it was with fear, some fear and trepidation that um, on the day I joined them, and suddenly there were all these amazingly odd people, um, but in a very nice way, because they all had interesting characters, they lived interesting lives, and their great love was sound. And in fact, I started with them for the last three months and did sound for another 44 years or something with the BBC. Um, I specialised in light entertainment and started doing, as one does, you start on the studio floor and learn all the crafts of picking up the sound and boom operating. I then became what is known as a grams operator, which I think Pat may have spoken about in the past, um, because he used to play things off gramophone records. I mean, that's as long since Garden. Um, it, then it became tape machines, and then it became samplers, and then it became mini-discs, and now it's all fully computerised. But the, the name somehow seems to have stuck. And as a trainee, I did the pilot episode of the very first Doctor Who, um, and then did most of the episodes of the first series. I think, was it An Unearthly Child, the yeah. first series? Yes, um, that's right. Pilot one. And subsequently, having grabbed a sound mixer, I think I mixed Terror of the Zygons and uh, 
some other one which will come the, to the invisible the, enemy the invisible and, enemy and the there was a man who knows the sun makers well. that's right right yeah. um which were for me most amazing things to do but anyway i'll let you sure yes into the... well what, what i what i particularly like about this and i think it's quite n- nice that we're doing it together is that pat sent me um i've met pat before not this is mm. the first time i've met Mike. um uh, pictures of the two of you together um, all those years ago, and you're still friends. So, uh, I mean, is is that is that typical? Do, do you BBC guys sort of uh, retain friendships over the years, or is it? Did you two particularly hit it off? I, well, I think that um, <clears throat> I had a fairly short career at the BBC compared to Mike, and he's just said he was there for forty four years. I left after about eight because I always wanted to work in the film industry, but I did make some very good friends uh, amongst the people that I worked with and also helped to train and I've kept up with um, quite a handful and it, it's nice to do that because um, yeah it, it one or two people that Mike also knows I still meet up all these years later for the odd lunch um, or help them with their amateur dramatic recordings <laughs> <laughs> and um just to go back slightly on why one went down the sound route rather than sticking with cameras and the picture was that one noticed in the production galleries that the, the cameras were all under the control of the director um, uh, but the sound people were sort of left on their own to deliver what was required for the programme. Yes, all right. Some directors were more interested in sound, which was which was good good news, but in general we were left to get on with it. And I also liked the sound crews better as people. Um, not that they were friendlier or anything like that. It was just that I suppose we all thought the same way in a way. Yes, and there were some very quirky people. And there was always somebody who knew about whatever you wanted to know about. There was somebody who knew about central heating, because that was an interest. There were people who knew about anything cars. I mean, it, it was just such a diverse collection. But as Pat said, all very focused on collecting the sound. And, and I think, as Pat was implying, the great joy, particularly in doing television sound and probably the same in film sound, is because people, to say they don't care is probably wrong, but... The focus in the studio is on the pictures, the direction of the artists, the direction of the cameras. And as long as the director can see their mouth open and hear something, um, that is probably adequate. Um, and this is not to do directors down, but they have a lot of pressure at that time. So the sound people are very much left to produce the very best they can and in the style of the programme that is required and to produce the atmosphere of the programme and present it really as this is right, we believe this is right for the programme. The director and the producer, of course, can overrule this and say, well, no, I don't, I don't like that. But it is, for me, the joy of actually creating a result, which in the main is probably 99% our sound team who have done it. And then people at the end can say, make comments, but usually you find you've got it right. And I mean, particularly with Doctor Who, in the studio, and it's probably true now with the, with the latest ones, you tended 
to collect just the dialogue because the, all the treatment of the voices, the music and the effects were put on later. I mean, it's not true of the very first episodes, but later on. So the concentration in the studio was to pick up the dialogue, get it nice and clean, get it nice and tight, get it nice and bright, and then to go away and add the music and the sound effects to make a very exciting programme. The To go in at half past nine on the dubbing day, which is how one would term adding all these sound effects, with really just a basic track of people speaking, and by half past ten at night to finish a programme that hopefully has children hiding behind the settee, and people enjoying the funny bits, and really being totally involved, I felt that, for me, was, was very, very fulfilling. And that's true of any sort of programme that we do, I think, that uh, if it's a comedy show, you're trying to get the atmosphere of the studio, of the enjoyment of the audience, um, uh, the comedians, the feel they've got in the studio and the rapport between them and the audience. And that's what I like doing. Mike's story of building the um, soundtrack in later years is very much a film approach. And uh, One thing that um, I learned when I started working in the film industry was that you have to get a clean dialogue track worry about all the other stuff later on. But historically, on the early Doctor Whos, um, most things were collected and put in at the time. Um, we had rudimentary video recording systems. That was on Ampex uh, two-inch tape. But you couldn't edit, not electronically like you can nowadays. <clears throat> so the if there was a recording break, because actors needed to shift from one set to another or maybe there was a costume change or something like that which meant stopping the recording and then starting again the tape physically had to be cut and spliced with sticky tape so we used to in the studio apart from collecting all the dialogue on uh, boom mics from the artists in the in the studio uh, I used to play in so-called spot effects uh, effects of short duration cued in off a tape recorder um, these could be gunshots uh, electric door sounds um, the TARDIS taking off landing, whatever or music links of short duration but if there were any atmospheres background sounds that had to bridge and edit then they were put on afterwards as also a music link would be put on afterwards between one scene and another. And that used to happen with one tape being run into a sound studio um, and a bank of tape decks, which I had control of, hopefully. Um, and then as we ran through the edited tape, I would add in the background atmospheres and the music or maybe correct something that hadn't quite gone right <laughs> At the, at the initial recording but um, without electronic editing as we know it now the tapes were actually very expensive they cost £90 a reel and in the early 60s that was actually quite a lot of money on the programme budget so where possible they didn't actually want to physically cut and splice the tape because you couldn't use that tape again whereas if the tape was unbroken it could be erased and used again, which unfortunately happened to an awful lot of material, which is now in great demand for archive mm. and DVD sales.
But they weren't to know that at the time. No, no. And, and of course, there's a lot you didn't know back because you both, because you were around for the pilot as well, weren't you, Pat? Yeah. So that I'm sitting with two gentlemen. It's amazing, isn't it? Who were there at, as the very first, uh, as it was abandoned and remounted, but nonetheless, the very first work was done on on Doctor Who. So, do you have any memories of of that, that first story? Only really latterly, um, because I managed to purchased DVDs of the pilot, which were released two or three years ago, I'm not sure when it was, um, and the first series. And going back to it, because at the time, as we all do, when we work, we just get on and we do it, and that hopefully that show's good and you move on to the next one. But coming back and looking at the pilot version of Doctor Who, the character of the Doctor was so different from the character that he used or that was evolved for the rest of the series. He appeared much more aggressive in the pilot show and he it had been rethought for the for the first series that he was much more I don't know whether avuncular is the right word but he he was a much friendlier person and he would appear to have times when he didn't quite know what to do and whereas is in the pilot he he drove everything and I think it was a, the right decision I mean the, the 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 character that came from it was much more welcoming and I think much more happily accepted by the viewers. I, th- I think had he stayed this very aggressive sort of person, he perhaps wouldn't have been so, so successful. But it's only coming back to it after 40 years, 50 years, whatever, um, that I'd noticed that. Because even at the time, I don't think I even noticed. And in terms of your speciality, I mean, I think that the, I, I did the thing a few years ago where I watched every Doctor Who story in, in chronological order. Yeah. But it was for a book. And um, I'd probably done it anyway. Um, and what I think is remarkable about all of that, I mean, there's good shows and everything, but the, the sound in particular strikes me as being very different from anything else you would have been doing. Plus, you mentioned the TARDIS, it's got that interior hum, it's got the takeoff, which is Brian Hodgson's work, and so you must have been dealing with the radiophonic workshop. So that yes. must have been quite exciting for people who specialised in sound. Yes, because they were very creative people, and they, we didn't normally work with them. I mean, music for plays, music for light entertainment, there was a band. And they played, and people composed it, and they played it. Then um, to suddenly find there's a wonderful group of people in Radiophonic Workshop who create different sounds and interesting noises gave the whole thing a totally different feeling. And so, as you say, it was very exciting that they would come in with tapes of all their creations, and adding that to our standard sound effects and the dialogue lifted the thing into a totally different dimension. And strangely, my one of my only memories of the first of the pilot and the first of the show of the first series is Osterley House Clock. Now, why that sticks with me? But it was a foggy day, and we had to have a clock chime, and it was Osterley House Clock, and that stayed with me for all these. And I don't know why. It ah. It's just one of those odd things that just stuck in the bed. But I remember this very moody. I mean, when you think of the technology that's available these days. It was a smallish studio, it was full, filled with smoke, and quite clunky cameras, because they took a lot of moving about, and they managed to create a foggy street and a foggy place, and it was quite magical. It's that first sound, isn't it, on yes, that opening yes, pan, there's yes, the clock in the background, yes, and then yes. the camera goes into the junkyard. Yes. You know, there are so many things that... I mean, you've written for radio, and radio really create the pictures with the sound they do. I, and I still feel that we make 
we still paint pictures with sound, even though it's television. Um, I don't know whether that remembers. There used to be, in part of the training scheme for grand ops, people who played in sound effects, there was a piece of film which was, was a car coming down a hairpin road down a mountain. And you could see it start at the top and go round the corners and round the corner, coming back closer and closer and closer to the bottom. It had no sound on it. And the task was to make two different versions of that. And one version, you could have a revving engine, you could put skids as it goes round the corners, you can have lots of noise, you can have driving music, and this is a car escaping or driving very quickly down a mountain road and it's very exciting. Or you could just, for a second version, just put gentle engine noise on it and a few birds singing and it was somebody out on a gentle afternoon just coming down the mountain. And you could look at both versions and believe what you're hearing from the same picture. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the, and that's what, from my point of view, is always so nice. So even though, you, I mean, if somebody is sitting at a fireside in a television set, you can either have thunderstorms and wind and howling noise outside, or you can have gentle birds. And it's still the same picture, but as far as the viewer is concerned, you have painted the whole of the outside of that. And as I say, with your radio time, that is the whole in itself. I mean, listening to your um, recent radio play, you know, where people move into a little shed, and there was just a wonderful acoustic of a little shed. And it was the same people speaking, but just that little bit of correct reverberation around the voices gave it exactly the feeling of a shed. And they moved somewhere else, and it was a bigger, bigger environment. It's all those sort of things that are really so enjoyable and you feel you've, you've done something when it's actually worked. And then the application of music. I remember seeing and helping to work on a programme where they, it was designed to show the different aspects of influencing the audience's reaction depending on what music was being played. And it was demonstrated by having footage of a girl just walking down a pavement, tracking shot, long tracking shot. So you didn't know what the plot was. And then different music was put over it. There was a happy sort of jaunting, oh, I'm out for a morning shopping type of music, which was great. Then they put on one that was full of menace. And you thought, what's happening? Is somebody stalking her? Is there somebody going to creep up behind her and attack her? And it was setting the scene and sound can set the scene very, very clearly in the audience's mind. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and straight after that, that first one, where as you know, we're introduced to the TARDIS, but then it's sort of Paleolithic times, but then the second story, it seems like Doctor Who was, you know, breaking new ground every five minutes because the Daleks come in, which again, the, the sound is surely part of their appeal. So did you know you were dealing with something that was going to get become quite as famous as it has? Well, no. I, I, I worked on the first series of the Daleks. That's when I actually joined. I joined later than, than Mike did on Doctor Who. Um, but, yes, the Daleks were introduced, these curious creatures. Um, nobody knew what was inside them. And it was many, many series later 
where they actually managed to get the lid off and some ghastly slimy creature was uh, was revealed but uh, whoever it was thought up the Dalek voices I, I don't know who was responsible for that a lot of it was the actor Peter Hawkins who was equipped with a, a lip ribbon microphone which is the same as a sports commentator's microphone so very close talking but his delivery was halfway there. Then it was electronically treated by feeding it into a circuit with an underlying frequency that tended to break up the dialogue. That frequency was then filtered out with a notch filter, so you never heard that underlying frequency. And that gave the staccato effect of, of the dialect speech. Um, it was, it was very good. Peter Hawkins was excellent. If there was more than one dialect character that needed dialogue, then Peter would handle the maximum main character stuff, and the other stuff was pre-recorded and then played in off a tape deck, which I do remember on one occasion leaving the poor little actress with egg on her face because I had to play the last line of a scene. And I looked down at my script and missed the line and looked up at the monitor and the poor girl was a big close-up waiting for this line so that she could react and I'd forgotten to play it. <laughs> so I had to hit the button fairly quickly and hope that nobody noticed. <laughs> Dramatic pause. Yes. No, and the, the whole creation of the voices again. A new series would come in and whether it was K-9 or the Zygons or whatever, you had to try and think of a new treatment for the voice that seemed to fit the shape of the, the character um, and spend an afternoon just playing really and thinking and thinking, well, perhaps this could be, the voice could be elongated or you could have some reverse echo on it. And all part of the sound effort. Well, we're still, we'll, we'll, yeah. stay in the, we'll stay in the 60s yeah. for, for now, because so, you were both around for that first year of Doctor Who. So, I mean, did, did the director um, make a difference to your job? Were the directors that made your job easier or harder or that you just preferred being around or that you thought were better? I think that it did make a difference, yes. Um, there were excellent directors that we worked with. And... Some of them, I think, could have been better at the what I would call the more science fiction stories because, of course, Doctor Who whizzed around and landed in various different times. So there were uh, episodes where it was a period piece or historical piece, like Marco Polo, for instance, that didn't have any monsters or Daleks or anything in. So one could... It was probably much more of a drama in that respect... So some of the directors were maybe better at handling that um, and others were perhaps more far-thinking to think up more science fiction-y type of, type of uh, material. Um, it's a long time ago now, the, the 60s, uh, but I, I do remember working with... Um, a director called Jerry Mill, who was very good. Ah, he directed the Faceless Ones, which was the Patrick Trouton story. Yeah. yeah. What I, a I, mind I, of information you are. Well, I don't, I don't <laughs> get out much. <clears throat> um, 
What, what other directors do we remember working with? Funny, because Jerry Maloney did the one, but everyone seems to have liked Jerry yeah. Maloney. Oh, I know. David Maloney, he yeah. was another one that I used to like working with. Um, that was fairly well done in the series. I think it was... Yeah, he did the you, mind robber that was... You, all... you, I think it got <laughs> done. They, they were all listed alphabetically in you know, the series, and I remember doing you, you, and actually getting a memo from him thanking me for my work on it. So. I don't remember what specially I did. <laughs> well, you turned up. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if I could go back to the radiophonics bit, um, for three years I was in charge of the uh, standard effects library, uh, which we used to keep in a studio in Lime Grove called Studio R, which was a sound-only studio, where we used to prepare the reels of uh, effects and music. Um, so sometimes I used to drive over to the radiophonics workshop at Maida Vale and get the tapes off Brian Hodgson and meet the guys there that had been playing with their synthesizers and bits of tape and everything, take the tapes back and try from time to time to correlate everything and make a catalogue so that the people that came after me would know where to find the standard effects because there had to be some sort of continuity. Um, the audience, especially the, the uh, younger members of the audience, they know exactly what's going mm. on. If you play the wrong sound at some time, oh no, that's not right. Mm -hmm. So it had to be very carefully catalogued yeah. all, 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 all the way through. But um, I do remember a story, I, I, can't, I wasn't there at the time, but when the theme tune was originally composed by Ron Grainer, Ron Grainer, um, he'd written it out in orchestral uh, nomenclature, and Delia Derbyshire got hold of it and um, regenerated it in electronics, and apparently played the result to Ron, and he said, "Did I write that?" And Delia said, "Most of it." <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's a great theme. Yes, yes. And, I mean, it has gone through so many variations, but still sounds great with each transposition. I mean, it really does work so well. And this whole thing of lives, I mean, the same, I suppose, is true of the archers, the same of EastEnders, that uh, your viewers will know that somebody's mobile phone has a particular ring phone, so one has to be so careful with to make sure that you are correct. I mean, as it is true with birdsong and things like that. There are people who will tell you that wren won't be singing at 12.30 on that day. Um, you know, there are so many people watching who are far more knowledgeable about and use train effects. Um, you try often to choose what you think is going to be right, but uh, there will be somebody probably who knows that it isn't. Um, so, well, so do you ever have that dilemma and go, well, that's right, but that will sound better? This is very much, yes. I mean, I would always go for something that sounds better, as far as I was concerned. I mean, if, if, if the sound of the train, or whatever it was, really lifted the scene and gave it what it needed, it doesn't actually worry me that it's not really a southeastern 642-whatever train. Um, and I think I have worked with various people in the industry, and particularly in the comedy field. I mean, there was, on a wonderful people who create wonderful effects, wonderful noises, but you suddenly come across somebody who, who say, oh, um, we, we need a, a window breaking there, glass smash. And 
trying to get them to give you a big, funny glass crash is quite difficult because they say, well, no, it wouldn't sound like that. You say, yes, but this is comedy, this is whatever. You, you really, and listen to that, that really sounds shattering. Um, what you've just played me is probably really just a window breaking and it's probably exactly the right noise, but it has no impact. And so, so much of it, even though probably is not technically correct, it is, again, it's creating the right atmosphere. I mean, which, again, you know from all your... Well, because I guess in, in storytelling, a window breaking is a catastrophe. Yes. But in, in real life, a window breaking is a chink. Yes. And, you know, the, even just the simple little lad with his cricket throwing it. Um, if it is a little crash tinkle. Oh, but the big... There is a, a beautiful effect, which is heard time and time again. But you really know some disaster, as you say, a disaster's happened. And... I don't think any window would ever make that noise, but it's, it's accepted. The other strange thing I've found is, because I, certainly in the earlier years, I used to use effects because I thought I'd seen them in a film. I mean, if going to, I've ne I'd never been to a jungle. So if we were in a jungle, I think, oh, now what did I hear in so-and-so film? And reproduce whether that was right. But it was the right sort of sound, as far as I was concerned, for, for the particular episode of whatever we were doing. Yeah. That... It, it is all just storytelling. Uh, I, I worked on a, a play with a lovely director, Alan Bridges, and it was a Chekhov play, so it was a pretty serious um, piece of stuff. And one goes to an outside, called an outside rehearsal, where the artists are in a drill hall somewhere, and the floor is all marked out with coloured tapes, representing the furniture and the edges of the set and everything. So they rehearse their lines and they rehearse their moves. So that by the time they actually come into the studio, they are move and word perfect. And the rehearsal in the studio is purely technical for the camera shots and, and sound. And um, gram ops go down to the outside rehearsal to have a chat with the director, having read the script, to see if he's got any particular ideas about what he wants in the way of the soundtrack. And I remember Alan said to me, he said, well, when we open the, the shot, he said, um, right at the beginning, he said, I want the sound of a Russian summer, summer evening. <laughs> and I thought, I've never been to Russia at any time of the year, so I really don't know what I can give you. I spoke to the set designer, who happened to be a Russian lady, and I said, what would you hear on a, um, a country house estate in Russia in the summer on a Sunday evening? And she tried to explain to me. So I went away and made up a couple of what we call blanket atmospheres, sort of just general running stuff. And I played them in, and it didn't work. There was a long track. It opened up with the camera tracking back over a pond or a lake, across a garden, and up to the veranda of the house where the um, characters were first discovered. Well, the blanket atmospheres didn't work. It wasn't doing anything to set the scene. So I scrapped all that completely. And eventually I just played four single sound effects, one after the other, letting them speak for itself before the next one came in. So we start off across the pond, and I think I had some 
croaking frogs or something like that, which suggested ponds. <laughs> we then put on a distant dog bark, which is always good for scene setting. As the camera comes across the lawn, Sunday evening, right, what about a distant church bell? And continental church bells sound so different to English church bells. There's a slight crack in them. So I found one of those and just played that in. And eventually, to suggest night, the uh, ubiquitous owl hoot. <coughs> but four single effects to match the camera uh, gradually revealing the, the, the set um, seemed to work. Mm, mm. You mentioned, in fact, it's working against sound, but I went to a, one of these outside rehearsals at a church hall in Putney with traffic going past and whatever, and I can't remember the production, but the the artists were standing on a table, which was supposedly the back of a lorry, and they were taking dynamite out of a box, which was likely to explode at any moment. And I remember us all standing in this hall, watching people standing on a table with a cardboard box, and we were all terrified that these little wrapped up circles of paper were going to explode. It is amazing the atmosphere, there's nothing to do with that, but that good acting and getting a feel for something. So I can almost feel now that we were almost sweating that these things, <laughs> these rolled up this paper. It, it, the whole world of entertainment, the, the radio, theatre, film, it is this building up of some sort of emotion that it's uh, I just, just just love that side of it and trying to bring that to people at home because it, it, certainly in television we are aimed at people sitting at home and certainly and I think that would agree the, the whatever we do with sound effects whatever we do with music the dialogue is the most important part we can see the actors performing and we need to hear their words. You can build around it, if it's a drama you can build around it with atmospheres, you can build around it with music. If it's a comedy show you can add lot, I mean when I say add laughter that is not true because it's always live laughter, I mean but you can mix in the laughter of the people in the studio. To try and get the feeling that the viewer is in the studio but the golden rule is really that you must hear the words because whatever atmosphere you build, whatever you create, if somebody sitting at home on their settee can't hear what's going on, you're wasting your time. And there's nothing more infuriating than being at home and not being able to hear the words. So I, I, this is such an important element of... Uh, uh, television sound is not perfect sound by any means. It's highly processed to try and achieve this. And I often think, now, somebody watching this, there's probably somebody in the kitchen clearing up the dinner plates, there's probably a bus going past the front door, the children are upstairs jumping up and down. I've got to make the complete sound of this programme totally intelligible to these people. Um, in the early days of television, it was felt that you, if somebody walked away in a scene, they will get quieter. Um, and if their acoustic would change and their level would change. And sitting in the ivory tower of a sound control room, 
because I say two big speakers, it used to be one big speaker when it was smaller, but now two big speakers, you could hear every word. But letting the dialogue get quieter and quieter as they move away is no good for somebody at home because they've got all these other... It, it, unlike cinema to a certain extent, which is a very controlled environment and you really can let dialogue become lower, which will then allow any explosions or any exciting noise to really sound big, but you know that the people sitting in that cinema won't have the distractions around them and the cinema will be set up to reproduce the dialogue at a reasonable level and the effects at a reasonable level. But television has to be in compressed. You, you can't allow people... For this. And, and we used, certainly in the late 60s, there were many complaints as we started to import more American programmes, which did always, even somebody at the top of a mountain, would sound close. I mean, sometimes it would sound silly, but you could always hear... And, and of course, people would write in and say... Why is it we can watch so-and-so the American programme and we can hear the words, and why is it we can't mm. hear BBC programmes? Which is when, really, we started bringing everything much tighter together. Um, it's not a natural sound by any means, but it, and I think that is the big difference between, certainly, television and film, is that we are aiming for intelligibility in a difficult surrounding, whereas film sound, which I love feeling that the whole thing is expansive and I'm listening to the dialogue, people are speaking quite quietly and there is an enormous crash or whatever and it, it's much more realistic but say, unfortunately in television we, and similarly with, with, with music um, televisions don't reproduce all the low frequencies so you have to artificially enhance some frequencies to give you that feeling on a small set I mean, yes, there are people who set themselves up with wonderful systems, but they're so few and far between that I don't think it's fair that we should, that just those people should be able to hear the best. So, yes, probably most of my sound is rubbish, but people can hear it. I'd, so. like, to, um, I'd like to revisit the idea of sound creating, helping to create an illusion. Um, Mike here was the uh, Grams operator on Michael Benteen's Square World and older listeners might well remember the models that uh, he used to have with actually men underneath pulling strings and making things happen and Mike was responsible for putting in all the sound effects of things like for instance there was a kamikaze mosquito or something like that I seem to remember who was effectively zooming round the little set, diving through a palm tree which opened its fronds just as it went past. And you would swear that you'd seen the mosquito going through. Mm. You know. But it wasn't. It was all played on the sound. Mm. That yes, must uh, have been... Again, Michael Benteen was so creative. I mean, he invented all these wonderful things. And it was the joy of producing what he wanted. Uh, and... Hopefully, something that was very amusing when you'd finished. Well, I mean, we we mentioned that that, that you specialised in light entertainment. More than that, you're a BAFTA award-winning uh, sound. So they tell me. Uh, for 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 Hitchhiker's mm. Guide, at, mm. at least, wasn't it? Um, but you worked on all the 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 great comedies, Dad's Army, Steptoe and Son, a lot of Croft, David Croft, yes, yes, various stuff. So he was a lovely man, uh, but he didn't jump about. He didn't shout. Um, so, yes, he works on that principle that you're there, therefore it is fine. I mean, the, 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 
I was his man. Um, but pure luck that I was given the very first Daz Army that I had to do. And the other great thing about BBC training in those days, being, being an old person, um, is that one's career was guided, um, which in the freelance market today is so difficult for, for young folk to get in to a particular production and to continue with the productions. It, it, because luckily we were staff, there was a sound manager who was the one who gave me the Dad's Army, and I'd perhaps do two or three series of Dad's Army, and the next series would be coming up, and I'd be told I'm not doing it. What? I was outraged, um, and I would be sent to do another sitcom or another programme. And I'm coming home and being furious about it. But in hindsight, again, you realise that that, from a management point of view, that brought somebody else in to do another series of Dad's Army. I mean, David Croft kicked up and said, no, I don't want this man, but well, probably Laurie Taylor went through, who did it perfectly well. It, it was a very broad scope of productions, um, which is, is so hard now for, in a, really, it is just a freelance world, that, yes, if you work with a producer um, and a director, you may keep working with them, but trying to get into other productions where people don't know you, you haven't got any management looking after you. The BBC's attitude, or management attitude, whoever management might be, was that all BBC staff were of equal competence in anything. A sort of universal mediocrity, if you like. <laughs> and they obviously wanted people to be able to do anything, like you could uh, mix a sound on a drama, or you could do uh, a high-speed, noisy, light entertainment show. Effectively, theoretically, yes, but it never worked in practice, because there were sound supervisors who preferred to do any and who were very, very good at mixing music. I mean, there were some ace people that could handle a big band ring, for instance. Other people preferred to do drama and would be completely lost with trying to do the Duke Ellington or the Woody Herman band or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, similarly, the Grams Ops. Um, there were those of us that liked working on drama Personally, I preferred to work on light entertainment because that, to me, was showbiz, you know. Mm. Um, bright lighting, fast music numbers, pretty girls, this, that and the other. That was showbiz to me, and I like the showbiz side of things. Um, but we had a um, an allocations secretary who had a huge chart, and she was trying to marry up shows with people to staff them, and directors and producers who preferred to have certain staff working on them. And so she was juggling all these balls in the air, and most of the time they came down in the right places. Mm -hmm. um, she managed to keep most people happy all the time. Occasionally there was something that went wrong, and she used to say to me, you ring up and say, um, she said, I'm stuck for somebody to do a couple of Z cars. Would you mind doing a couple of Z cars? If you do, she said, you could be on the black and white minstrels for the rest of the season. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, no contest, you know. <laughs> There's more to come from Pat and Michael uh, in the next 
edition where they talk about uh, all sorts else. It really is a fascinating and lengthy discussion. Their charity, uh, they both pick the same one as it happens, uh, is Hearing Dogs for Deaf People. Hearing Dogs for Deaf People, which is www.hearingdogs, all one word, hearingdogs.org.uk www.hearingdogs.org.uk Tune into the next one of these. Thanks for listening to this one. Enjoy a week and ta-ta. Doctor Who Short Trips The TARDIS eased itself into reality in the shadow of a tall brick tower near a broad, slow river. Ordinarily, the grinding roar of its engines might have turned heads, but not today. A nearby brass band drowned out the howl of its arrival, and the eyes of passers-by were drawn elsewhere. The doctor swung open the TARDIS's police box door and breathed in city air. Hmm... Not bad, he smiled. Industrial, but not the worst vintage. Two more figures popped up behind him, jostling him out of the ship. So, where have we landed now? asked Jamie, a young, kilted Scotsman with wary eyes. Oh, don't you know? the doctor replied, fruitlessly attempting to smarten his shabby old jacket. Well, how would I? Jamie objected. A young woman in a sparkly jumpsuit gently squeezed by. What do you think, Zoe? Zoe took in her surroundings analytically, the way she'd been trained to since childhood. Petrol cars growled by on a raised bridge to the right, and a strange wrought-iron greenhouse affair stood raised a little way off to the left. Beyond it, Near the river's edge, a mass of men in brown coats and trilby hats had gathered to watch some kind of display. Well, it's it's the past, she said hesitantly, searching her eidetic memory for a match. She stepped forwards to take a better look around. There is something familiar about that skyline. Oh, it's London again, isn't it? said Jamie. The doctor clapped his hands gleefully. Yes, the south bank of the Thames. Oh, we, we can't have been here since Sewer. So. Oh, let's see now. Uh, 1668? Oh, no, Zoe cried, pointing to her left. That can't be right. Jamie and the doctor hurried to her side. Further down the riverbank, surrounded by milling crowds, stood an enormous metallic dome. At its side loomed what looked like a huge robotic creature, a gleaming spire of metal, taller than any building, atop three spindly, insect-like legs. It's a spaceship, Doctor, like the Dominators. Big Finish. We love stories.